Well, thank you so much, worship team. Hark the herald angels sing. Second week of Advent. What a wonderful place to be in God's church with his people. My name is John Harris. I am privileged to be an elder here. Let me start off with a uh, rather unusual question. If you examine all of your extended family, which member lived to the greatest age? What's your record? Can anybody beat my grandmother? Just shy of 109 years of age, she was believed to be at least the second oldest but uh, likely the oldest person in BC. And amazingly, at that age, aside from a weak hip and uh, being hard of hearing, she was lucid of mind, witty as of tongue, she had laughing, twinkling eyes. And if she were here for our Christmas dinner and she didn't like a joke that you were uh, telling, she would likely pick up her bun from the plate and chuck it at you across the table. No kidding. She was a perpetual party waiting to happen. Now, this is really what was interesting. The newspapers loved her. uh, Got the picture of her there? There we are. The newspapers loved her. And as she, about when she hit about 106, every birthday, she was getting reporters swarming her. And there she is for her 107th birthday on the front page of the Vancouver Sun. Many, many articles were written about her. And you can guess. What do you think the question they asked every year was? What is the secret to your old age? There she is, age 38 in 1940. Well, she passed away just shy of 109. She left a son who was 80 years old. Well, we're going to be looking at a passage uh, that comes from the f- that's in the first couple of chapters of Luke. And uh, one of the interesting things about uh, these birth narratives is that uh, seniors take quite a, have quite a high profile. We've got uh, Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, who are barren. We've got uh, Simeon, who we presume was old, and, and Anna as well. But we're going to find that... that they're not going to tell us about the secret for living an old age. They're going to talk to us about something much more important. They're going to discuss for us and reveal for us how this ordinary-looking baby, who now is about, at this point in our narrative with Simeon, about just shy of six weeks old, and they're going to show us some very essential truths about this Christ child. So let's, uh, let's read the passage this morning. It's from Luke 2, chapter 28, tw- uh, sorry, uh, verse 21. I'd like us to stand. This is the word of the Lord. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, 
Now, what, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you spoke the world into existence, and now you speak new life into your children. Please give us the light of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us the grace to receive your word, and Lord, through it, convict us of our sins, and may we know that Jesus is sufficient for everything. May we be strengthened as weak, and may God's body be built up through this study. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we uh, unpack this amazing passage, I want you to keep in mind the uh, prophecy that uh, towards the end of the passage that Simeon uh, mentioned. He said, behold, this child is appointed for the rising and falling. Keep that in mind. We're going to refer to this many times. And as we go through this passage, I believe that there are three points that are crucial to our growth as Christians, to our discipleship. And uh, here's what I want you to take away. These are the takeaways. Number one, Jesus was born under the law. That has titanic implications for all of us. Number two, I want us to learn the lessons from Simeon's life in the Spirit. And number three, I want us to understand the importance of the prophecies that Simeon gives us. They involve light. They involve glory. They involve, as I've already said, rising and falling. So let's pick it up at verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, that's Jesus, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So here we begin with a young couple. You probably are aware that they're likely teenagers. Mary might have been 13 or 14. And they're bringing Jesus up to Jerusalem. Now why up? Well, because their destination is the temple. And the temple is on a mountain. 
So, you, so likely they climbed up these massive stairs up to the temple 40-acre platform. It was a huge place. At the height of the Jewish festivals, it could hold maybe 225,000 people. What is that? Six times the size of BC Place. It was massive. And then they would enter one of the courts. There was the outer courts of the Gentiles, the court of the women. And notice that there is this uh, balustrade fence with inscriptions. And, these ins- and they've actually dug up some of the signs that were on, the, on this fence. And one of them is a warning to Gentiles, to foreigners, that if they pass through on the other side of that fence, that their life will be forfeited. That is how rigid the barriers were at that, this time. So there they are in, the, in one of the outer courts. And by the way, why are they in the temple in the first place? Well, Mary and Joseph, Joseph are faithful Jews. They're observant Jews. And so they're observing several Old Testament laws. As we read through this passage, you may have noticed that the term law is used at least four times. So there were actually five laws that they were fulfilling as obedient Jews. First of all, Jesus was circumcised, as we've mentioned. Then he was named in obedience to the angel's command. Then there's three more that uh, form the reason for their visit. There was a uh, purification ritual. After the messiness of birth, according to the Old Testament, the woman was ceremonially unclean, so after 40 days, the uh, new mothers had to offer a uh, burnt offering, a couple of birds. Along with the burnt offering, there's various passages in Exodus that stipulate that the firstborn had to be presented to God in the temple. And then besides the offering, besides the presentation, in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, they were instructed that the firstborn should be dedicated to the Lord's service. Now, we don't have time to give this the depth that it deserves. We'll, uh, again, let uh, Jonathan deal with that theologian that he is. But the important point is this, that the reason why Jesus was born under the Old Testament law has massive implications for your life. Why? Well, we saw in our reading that Simeon prophesied that Jesus would lead to the rising and the falling of many. And the fact that Jesus was born under the law is foundational to the way that God wants to raise you up as a Christian. And it's incredible. Paul explains the process. Let's look at the reasons that Paul gives why Jesus had to be born under the law. Follow with me in Galatians uh, 4.4. Now, this is a whole chain of of sequences and unbelievably important parts of our Christian life. Let's, uh, Let's follow it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So here we are. The, uh, the Mary and Joseph are showing that Jesus has been born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. So what is redemption? Well, you may remember that redemption actually is like a purchase. It's like a payment of a price, right? By a redeemer to deliver somebody from bondage. We were all slaves 
Before we became Christians, we were all slaves. We were slaves to something. We saw that in the video. But because Jesus was born under the law, he could redeem us who were slaves under the law. Why? To raise us up from that oppressive slave status. So that, let's keep going, so that we might receive, what does it say? We might receive adoptions as sons. That great 19th century preacher, one of the greatest who has ever lived, right up there with Jonathan, greatest who has ever lived, put it perfectly. Our Savior put himself under the law for our sakes, and in every jot and tittle he observed it. So we are delivered from its dominion. For Christ has fulfilled the law on our account so that it has no more claim on us. Catch that? Jesus was born under the law so that the law would not have dominion over us so that we, through faith, could be in grace. Let's keep going. It's one thing to know with your mind that you are adopted as a child of God. It's one thing to know with your brain a truth. It's another thing to know in your heart that you are God's child. Maybe your English teacher used to talk to you about propositional truth. That's knowledge of the brain. But God wants us to have more than that. He wants us to have relational truth. And so Galatians 4.4 continues. Remember the sequence. Jesus is born under the law. Then we are redeemed. We're purchased from slavery. And then we're adopted. But the chain link keeps going. The links keep expanding. He gives us then the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we can know that we have been adopted into God's family experientially, directly in our heart. Isn't that amazing? God is, Jesus is born under the law, which leads to our redemption, which leads to our adoption, and that allows God to send the Spirit into our hearts. And now we come to the final climax. The Spirit is in our hearts, and what does that evoke? What does that cause? That gives us this experiential, deep knowledge that we are a child of God and allows us to cry out, what is it? That Aramaic word for Father? Abba. That's right. What does Abba mean? Maybe your Sunday school teacher uh, said it meant something like uh, an intimate form of daddy. That's, that's maybe a little too familiar. Those of you who, um, I don't know if any of you have lived in Quebec, but perhaps the, uh, the French term papa captures it. Incredible. And remember, all of this started, this whole sequence of events and blessings that we have started because Jesus was born under the law. It's unbelievable. And those of you who were adopted, those of you who have adopted, know that your adoption is like a parable 
for this uh, miracle of being adopted into God's family and being able to call him Abba. And when you look up at the stars on a cold winter night, and when you marvel at God's creation and the swirling galaxies and the voracious black holes that are up there, those unimaginable energies and distances, that behind all of that power in creation is your Father who desires that you cry out to him, Abba. Does your prayer life reflect that warmth? Or is it just kind of a static ritual? Well, we move on to verse 25. And uh, we're going to take a look at the second big emphasis in this passage, Simeon's life in the Spirit. Let's pick up our story and learn the lessons from Simeon's life in the Spirit. In the middle of all of these massive crowds, likely in uh, the court of the women or the court of the Gentile, who should they happen to meet but Simeon? Turns out that the meeting was not by chance. It was divinely orchestrated. And so we meet Simeon. And all we know about Simeon is in these 11 short verses. We don't know his exact age. We assume he's quite elderly. We don't know what his role was. Was he a priest? Was he just a regular devout temple worshiper? But we do know that from God's perspective, his resume is outstanding. Look at it in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was, how does God describe him? Righteous. He had integrity. He was devout. He followed God's laws with all his heart. Besides, but besides being, having a character of righteousness and devotion, he was consumed by looking forward to God's promise, watching for What is it? The consolation of Israel. It's another term for the Messiah. But the quality that is emphasized the most about Simeon, which leads to our second point, is that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, as we we look at um, Zechariah, at Elizabeth, at Mary, Mary, in the first two chapters of Luke, we find that the Holy Spirit plays a large role in what happens. And we find out that the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit is actually exercised from their righteousness, from the high esteem that God had from them. And as you fight against sin, and as you, by God's grace, become conformed into Christ's image, you are setting the fertile ground, you're actually, you're actually, you're actually putting, um, getting your garden all tilled for the exercise and the release of the Holy Spirit. And this is what's happening with, uh, with Simeon. So the Holy Spirit operates and gives us enabling in many different ways. Remember, at this time, we're still in the Old Testament, right? The New Testament doesn't officially begin until Jesus' baptism up to John the Baptist. But still officially, we're in, we're in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament evidences of the Holy Spirit power were, were incredible. Now, when we come into the New Testament, uh, there's a lot of overlap, a lot of similarity between the way that the, the Holy Spirit empowers us but also some major differences, too, which uh, we won't get into. But uh, remember that in, for Simeon, he, the Holy Spirit gave him supernatural knowledge. 
He told him, he showed him that he would not see death before he had seen, he would see the Lord's Christ. Supernatural knowledge. And the Holy Spirit for Simeon gave him guidance. He led him into the temple at just the right time. But there's more. Remember that this baby Jesus, to the naked eye, doesn't appear to be really any different than any other baby. So how are we going to know that he's not just extraordinary, but actually is the hinge of history? He's the fulcrum point of history, and, and he is the Lord of heaven and earth that descended to earth. How are we going to know that? Well, God chose to use angels, chose to use human beings to communicate that. God uses all sorts of interesting ways to communicate his truth. He can use a donkey. He can use stones. But in this case... He used Simeon to identify who Jesus was. He also used uh, uh, angels. He used uh, Elizabeth. He used Zechariah in the first few chapters of, of, of Luke. Jesus' authentication and verification as the Son of God, as the Messiah, came through the witness of other people. And now it is Simeon's turn. Now, what I want you to notice is that when we look at these four characters, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and Simeon, there's a pattern for the way that the Holy Spirit is released. For every single one of them, there's a promise given. Then there's a promise fulfilled. Then there's the release of the Holy Spirit. And then after the release of the Holy Spirit, there's some kind of, there's a song, there's some expression of blessing, there's some expression of praise. And this is exactly what happened, as we're going to see, to Simeon. He goes from this into an expression of praise that's uh, traditionally called Simeon's song. This has a direct application to what we're doing here in church. Our wonderful worship team is actually part of this pattern. What does Ephesians 5 say? It says, don't be foolish, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, how do you, how do, you do that according to, according to the same pattern as Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and Simeon? It says, by, and an evidence of that is addressing each other one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that unbelievable? Filling of the Holy Spirit, the release of the Holy Spirit, often leads right in to spiritual songs and worship. That's part of what we're doing in church. If our hearts are right when we're worshiping, we are ministering to each other and expressing the fullness of the Spirit, just like all of these characters did in the first two chapters of Luke. So to recap, we've shown what it means that Jesus was born under the law. We've examined how the Holy Spirit has operated in Simeon's life. Now let's look at Simeon's prophecies, our third point. Remember these four words, light glory, rising, and falling. 
So Simeon and Jesus' family connect somewhere in the temple courts through the Spirit. Simeon realizes the epic importance of this baby. And what happens? Simeon takes him in his arms. And here's that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He blessed God. Think, think of the stunning paradox here. You've got a baby who's small enough to be held in one arm. What does he weigh? You young mothers, what does a six-week-old baby weigh? What, 12 pounds? Eight? Okay. Eight-pound baby, and yet in that arm, Simeon is holding the God who created heaven and earth. Wow, that is stunning. How would it feel to hold the one who Hebrews 1 says upholds the universe by the word of his power? Or Colossians 1 says, the one who is before all things, the one in whom all things hold together, to hold the one who overflows all skies, who overflows all horizons, the one who spoke trillion galaxies into existence, the one who is great in his essence as God, yet small enough to be a servant in a barn. Wow. So Simeon takes this, his creator, literally his creator in his arms, and he blesses God and says, and he's quoting from several places in Isaiah, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I'm ready to go, Lord. Province has been fulfilled. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. All peoples. Now this is different. In the song of Zechariah, in the song of Mary, it had been them praising God for the blessings given to Israel. The scope is expanding. Do you remember that warning sign in the temple? That's about to be shattered. And for Simeon realizes that this Messiah is going to be extended and be given to all humanity. So after Simeon prophesies that Jesus will bring the light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to Israel, his father and mother, of course, marvel at what's said about him. But Simeon continues this song. And I, and I want to... Uh, uh, focus in on this for the, last, uh, for the last part here. The first part of his song was directed to God. Now he switches and blesses Mary and Joseph. And he says, and now a shadow appears. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed. There will be pain for Mary as well that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Up to now, in the birth narratives, there's been joy, angels singing, shepherds rejoicing, Mary praising God, Elizabeth, Zachariah praising God. It's been unmitigated exuberance, enthusiasm. Now, there is a shadow that appears. Some will rise with Jesus. Some will 
fall with Jesus. He's predicting that Jesus is going to be an inherently polarizing figure. Let me explain it this way. What comes to your mind when I say, pink Cadillac, or Toronto Maple Leafs, or black licorice, or Vegemite, or cats? <laughs> there. <laughs> same word, same data. Some of you respond positively. How anybody could like Vegemite. Some of you respond negatively. It's like that with Jesus. Simeon is saying here that some will rise with Jesus and some will fall from Jesus. And as Simeon predicts, this baby will be, this is interesting language, will be a sign that is opposed. And as a result, those divided responses, what does verse 35 say? Those divided responses will expose the hearts of many. Now we see this fulfilled increasingly in all four Gospels. You look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As the chapters move along, don't we see this polarization happening? This rising and falling? Um, and it's a polarization that simmers from anger that finally boils out into the outright murder of the Son of God. Some are drawn to him. Some are repulsed by him. Right from the start, this baby Jesus draws people from faraway places to give him worship and to give him gifts. And yet the same baby Jesus makes an insecure, paranoid, Herod, Herod panic and slaughter babies because he thinks that maybe Jesus is, is a threat to him. Same miracles. Jesus heals a lame man beside a pool. He heals a hunched, crippled, bent-over woman. For some, it's a cause of rejoicing. For others, it makes them angry because he violated their man-made, fanatical Sabbath rules. Same with the parables. Jesus tells parables. To some, it reveals secret hidden treasures of the kingdom of God. And for other people, those same parables provoke blindness. Jesus is inherently polarizing. He divides humanity into two. John 1 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Same words. Same person. Opposite responses. Two poles of the magnet. Attraction and repulsion. Why does it have to be this way? Why do some rise with Jesus and why do some fall? Why does he have to be a sign that is opposed? Because God has ordered the spiritual realm with a foundational law. And that law is this. In order for there to be a rise, there must be a fall. 
Now you're thinking, oh, that sounds a little cryptic, a little vague. <laughs> that needs some explanation. Well, let me explain it this way. If you are a child of God, God has already raised you up in a way that is staggering. As we saw with our first point, Jesus was, because Jesus was born under the law, he's raised you up into the status of a full adoption as a child that you can call your heavenly father Abba. But God's raising up of you goes much higher than that. Ephesians 2 tells us that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved, and, notice the language, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages we might, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He raised us up to heaven. Did you catch that? Raised, that's past tense. If you're a child of God, spiritually, you've already been raised up into the heavenlies. But remember, the law of the spiritual realm, for there to be a rise, there has to be a fall. And who took the fall for this to happen? What kind of a fall was required for us to be raised up like this and seated in the heavenlies? How deep was the fall of this Messiah who allowed us to be raised up? It was a fall that went down so deep that it involved torture. It involved death on a cross. Ephesians 4 says that Jesus descended into the lower regions of the earth. This baby that Simeon is holding is proof of that. The Son of God has come down to earth from heaven. And he has descended not just to earth, but through death he will descend into the earth and be buried. Remember how Philippians 2 describes that fall that allows for our rise? Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But remember, the law of the spiritual realm is not just that there must be a fall, it's that after the fall comes a rising. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we've looked at this passage, we've seen the fulfillment of the prophecy that was given to Simeon that this child will cause the rise and the falling of many. We saw in our first point that being born under the law sets in motion a sequence of blessing that ends up raising us up to being adopted and being allowed and given the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father. In our second point, we've seen that he raises us up by giving us the power of the Spirit through worship. 
And in this third point, we see through Simeon's prophecy that God has ordained that his Messiah will cause the rising and falling of many. And that that rising of falling will not just be those who rise with Jesus and fall away from Jesus, but that rising and falling will happen to Jesus himself, that he will fall, come to earth, be crucified for our sins, and then be raised up again. So what's the application? The law of rising and falling applies to us as well. The law of rising and falling has to become a part of our daily, even moment-by-moment spiritual experience. What does Romans 6 say? says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The application is is that the rising and falling means that in your spiritual life, you constantly have to be going through repeating in spiritually the death and resurrection of Christ by being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or Ephesians 4, part of, part of this rising and falling that we have to, uh, to uh, emulate, to be obedient to God, is to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind to put on the new self, that's the rising, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In your spiritual life, day by day, moment by moment, you will find that if you will fall like a grain of wheat that John 12, 24 talks about, like Jesus, emulating Jesus, a grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies, if you do that, you will bear much fruit. Just like Jesus who when he died, single death produced the fruit of the church, produced innumerable people in his kingdom, of which we are a part right here. Thank you. Let's finish with prayer. We thank you, our God in heaven and our Abba Father, that you have allowed us to know your Son by your Spirit and the Word. And God, now that we have received Jesus through your word, we ask that this, in this week we'll, we will be rooted up and built up in you and strengthened in faith and overflowing with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.